Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. Hi, everyone. Welcome home. Before I begin, I wanted to invite you to my live tonight on TikTok. You can find me there at Military Margot with a T at the end. And tonight, I'm going to be celebrating a pretty amazing milestone, 3 million downloads. I will be chatting about today's case, which is a two-part case. I'm only releasing part one today. And I'm also going to be talking about anything else that you might have on your mind. So make sure you join me tonight at 9 p.m. Central on TikTok. Today's case is another highly recommended case. But honestly, this case is so recent. I mean, it is literally the most hot off the press completed case that I've covered so far. Join me today as I take you back to life circa January 2020, when a 27-year-old Mennonite woman by the name of Sasha Kraus vanished in New Mexico as she traveled a mere 250 feet from her home to her church. This is the story of Sasha Kraus. Now, let's dig in. To prepare for this case, I watched the fully litigated trial on Law & Crime Network. I also read articles in KRQE, Fox 10 Phoenix, New York Post, Inside Edition, Arizona Central, and Military Times. Saturday, January 18, 2020, was a typical day in the Lamp and Light Mennonite community located in Farmington, New Mexico. The community was often referred to as a compound, but the religious community was anything but. Everyone could come and go as they pleased. The community was spaced out and open to the public. In fact, the Mennonite community is accepting of all people and their goal is to bring people into the word of God. In one of the homes located on the Lamp and Light community was a home referred to as the Lighthouse. The Lighthouse was occupied by the house mom and dad who lived in the top floor of the home and in the basement or more like the bottom level, there were three bedrooms, each occupied by a single Mennonite young lady who was working in the Lamp and Light community for any length of time. Some had been there for three years and some were on a mission for a year with the prospect of extending their time later. One of the roommates was 27-year-old Sasha Kraus. She was not born into the Mennonite faith, but when she was 11 years old, she began attending Mennonite church. And by the age of 12, she was baptized. She was very traditional Mennonite. She wore the very modest, non-flashy clothing and the traditional hair covering. And the hair covering, for those of you wondering, looks very much like a hair bonnet. Well, Sasha had been living in one of the rooms in the lighthouse, but one of the trailers on the property was being renovated and Sasha was intending to move into the trailer alone, you know, to make more room for another person to move into her room in the lighthouse. Sasha was really looking forward to this time and earlier in the day on this Saturday, Sasha went into the Farmington town to purchase a new bed for her new place. When Sasha returned, she asked her roommate Lily Petrie to help her put the bed together. And the lady spent a good chunk of time, like something like three hours, putting the bed together. 
I believe they did this at the trailer, but it's unclear from the record. After the bed was all put together, Lily and Sasha cooked dinner and they spent time together. At around 7 p.m., Lily went into her bedroom to shower and get ready for bed. Before Lily left the room, Sasha told Lily and her other roommate, Lucinda, that she was heading to the church to get some books. You see, the following day, the Sunday, she was going to be substitute teaching for a class, a Sunday school class. The church was not very far away from where they lived at the lighthouse. Maybe it was like 200 or 300 feet away, but it was a cold night and it was dark because the compound was not very well lit at the time. And it wasn't uncommon for anybody to drive from one facility to the next. So Sasha jumped into her car, a Ford Focus, and she left. Lucinda went to bed at around 11 p.m., but she noticed that Sasha hadn't returned yet. But she thought maybe, I don't know, she got caught up doing something or chatting with someone at the church. So she left the light on for Sasha and went to sleep. But randomly, at around 1.30 in the morning, Lucinda just woke up. She rubbed her eyes open and realized that the light that she had left on for Sasha was still on. She went into Sasha's room to look for her. Upon not finding Sasha, she sent a text message to Lily asking, where's Sasha? I'm scared. Lily woke up and she figured that Sasha had returned. But when she realized that Sasha was missing, the two ladies immediately became concerned. Sasha's phone was gone from her room, but her purse and her wallet were still in the bedroom. You see, there's a 10 p.m. curfew, and by this point, it was 1.30 in the morning, and this was very unlike Sasha. They called and sent a text message to Sasha, but there was no response. The ladies immediately put on their warm clothing, and they walked to the church. Upon arriving at the church, they saw Sasha's car parked at the upper parking deck in front of the church, but the church was dark. They entered the unlocked church, which, by the way, this was common practice back then for everything to just be unlocked in the compound. So they searched and they didn't see Sasha. But the books that Sasha was set to pick up, well, they were still in the church. The two roommates searched Sasha's unlocked car and they didn't see anything amiss. It just actually seemed like Sasha just vanished. Typically, the ladies would call the house dad or mom. But on this particular weekend, the house parents were both out of town in one of the Dakotas. So Lucinda called another older couple from the Mennonite church, Kirk and Naomi Morse. It was about two o'clock in the morning when Naomi's phone rang. She woke up and answered it. And that's when Lucinda and Lily told her that Sasha was missing. Kirk jumped out of bed and met the ladies. Kirk and Naomi just happened to be staying just a few minutes away at the Gingrich home which was an assisted living facility for elderly women on the compound. So he was at the church within five to 10 minutes max. Kirk got there. He searched everything. He entered the church. He searched Sasha's car. He even went back to the lighthouse and searched Sasha's room. And they were all very much stumped. Before calling the police, though, Kirk called one more person. He called the general manager of the Light and Lamp Publishing House, which was also on the property, and that's specifically where Sasha worked. Kirk spoke to the manager, Paul, but when he asked Paul, Paul had no clue. He didn't think that Sasha was going anywhere. So at around three o'clock in the morning on January 19th, 2020, about eight hours after Sasha had last been seen, Kirk called the Farmington Police Department to report Sasha missing. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. 
but I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. 27-year-old Sasha Kraus was 11 years old when she dedicated herself to the Mennonite community. The Mennonite community is very traditional and calm, and honestly, they don't believe in using a lot of technology. Although Sasha did have a cell phone and a car at the time of her disappearance, her cell phone wasn't like a fancy smartphone. Sasha grew up in Texas. She was only 15 months old when along came her baby sister, Amanda. She was four when her other sister, Megan, was born. Sasha and her siblings were homeschooled and her father was an analytical chemist. At this point, the Krauses thought that their family was complete, three beautiful girls. But when the youngest, Megan, was nine years old, along came Emma and then Robert soon thereafter. So Sasha was the oldest of five. And well, After her mom suffered from some pretty bad postpartum depression after her two kiddos, Sasha had to grow up pretty quickly, helping to raise her younger siblings. Sasha's mom knew that being such an amazing helper had to put a damper on her, but Sasha turned to writing and poetry, and she self-taught herself a lot of things, one of those things being Spanish. As reported by KRQE, Sasha was a schoolteacher in Grandview, Texas for six years. At some point, she left her town of Grandview and set up shop in Farmington, New Mexico, where she used her bilingual skills to work at the Lamp and Light Publishers. Lamp and Light published religious texts in English, Spanish, and French. The company also oversaw Bible studies and they would manually grade exams sent in by students of the religious text. That's where Sasha was working at the time of her disappearance. Sasha was fluent in Spanish and was quickly learning and honing her French skills. Just three weeks before Sasha went missing, she had visited with her family in Grandview, Texas. According to reporting by Fox 10 Phoenix, her family was not big into taking pictures. But when she was with her family this go around, her dad, Robert Krauss, just had a funny feeling he might not have a chance to see Sasha again. He insisted that his family gather for a series of pictures. Silly, stick your tongue out type pictures, but also the serious, 
formal family pics. Sasha would be driving her Ford Focus 14 hours from Grandview, Texas to Farmington, New Mexico, but her drive was not without incident. You see, as Sasha pulled out of her family home, Sasha swiped her car against a pickup truck, knocking her passenger side mirror straight off. Oh boy. And she hadn't even begun her journey. But Sasha seemed just like an overall fun-loving person, not someone who was going to let this get them down. And off Sasha went. Her parents were worried about her long drive, but they were relieved when Sasha let them know that she had arrived back at Lamp and Light safely. Sadly, though, just three weeks later, they would get a call that would change their life forever. But before this, back at Farmington, Sasha really just did her thing. She translated for service members who needed it. And on Sunday, January 19th, she was looking forward to substitute teach for a few preschool aged kids. After Sasha returned with her family, she and one of her roommates, Lucinda, began to have a little bit of an issue. It really was not that big of an issue, but I want to mention it here since it was brought up in trial and it just goes to show how peaceful and sweet Sasha truly was. Lucinda was also working in the community. She was Sasha's roommate, but she was a bit of a slacker, this Lucinda person. And I say slacker for lack of a better term. And Lucinda, during trial, she testifies to this. And of course, when you have a slacker in the bunch, someone else usually picks up the slack. The person picking up the slack in this case was Sasha, but she did it happily and without complaint. At some point, Lucinda noticed that Sasha was doing this, picking up her slack, and she was like, hello, don't pick up my slack. Just tell me and I'll do better next time. That was literally the extent of this little non-spat spat and the girls were back to normal. I mean, could this have had a reason to do with why Sasha was moving to a trailer? Maybe. But could this have anything to do with her vanishing? I don't know. It seems very unlikely. After Sasha was reported missing, Detective Strange was the New Mexico detective who took the lead on her disappearance. He went through the area and pulled surveillance footage, which did not directly cover the church, but it did cover an entryway into the church area. The footage was okay, but it wasn't great because at night the area was not well lit. Detective Strange looked at all the places that Kirk Morse looked, and he didn't find anything weird. One of the things he did find was that Sasha's car keys were discovered between the passenger seat door and the seat itself, which is a very strange place to discover a set of car keys. During his investigation, Detective Strange discovered that there was a congregation member who was present at the church between 7.45 p.m. and 8 p.m. on the night that Sasha went missing. This church member was Samuel Kuhn and his wife, Juanita. They were interviewed and they said that on Saturday night, they had been playing family games and had dinner with their family when Juanita remembered a few things they needed to do to get ready for church on Sunday. They had to swing by a friend's house to pick up a speaker and they had to swing by the church to pick up a water jug. They arrived at the church at around 7.50 p.m., they went to the top parking lot and they parked and they chatted for a minute. But after a minute or so, having never exited the car, they drove to the bottom parking lot, which was closer to where the water jug was located. They both recalled seeing Sasha's car and Juanita actually remembers the car specifically because it had a huge scratch. Remember that accident she was in just a few weeks earlier? 
Samuel and Juanita walked into the dark church, but they never turned on the lights. Samuel used the light from his phone to illuminate the way. He thought it odd that the light was on in a supply office, but thinking nothing of it, he turned it off and continued into the church. From the lower level, the coons went up the stairs to retrieve the mail, and then they went back to their cars and went home. Back at home, they were fast asleep when at approximately 3.30 in the morning, they got a call saying that Sasha Cross was missing. That's when Samuel sprung into action. He got dressed and went to the church. The detectives on Sasha's case took her missing persons report pretty seriously. They were able to get a warrant for Sasha's phone records and the records revealed that her phone was in the lamp and light area until about 7.45 p.m. Then it left the area and traveled west, heading towards Four Corners, which is a part of the United States where four states touch in one corner. The states are Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. Anyway, once Sasha's phone got close to this Four Corners location, it pinged from a Colorado phone tower, and then it went off the network and never, ever returned. The information from Sasha's cell phone records was nice to have, but without anything else, it was kind of useless right now. Authorities were really interested in Samuel and Juanita Coons. How convenient that they were at the church around the same exact time that Sasha, poof, vanished, and they didn't see a thing? But honestly, in this case, where there was no evidence of foul play or any physical evidence, that is, this case could also be, you know, a 27-year-old religious woman who just wanted to get away. The case was very frustrating for the detectives because they were doing as much as they could. They had eight to 10 detectives working this missing persons case, but every lead led to a dead end. And finally, after three or four weeks after Sasha vanished, the case went cold. There were no other investigative leads to take. The missing persons flyers were everywhere. The media was very interested in the narrative that a young Mennonite woman was missing, but still nothing. But then on February 22nd, 2020, a little over a month after Sasha went missing, the San Juan County PD, which is where Farmington is located, they got a call from the Coconino Police Department in Arizona. The police department in Arizona had found the body of a young Mennonite woman at the Sunset Crater Volcano National Park. And guess what? They needed to identify their victim, and they wondered if it could be Sasha. On February 21st, 2020, Cynthia Schultz, a woman who was living out of her car at the time, found herself around Sunset Crater Volcano National Park. She woke up that morning at about seven o'clock in the morning, made herself some breakfast and was having some issues with her truck. She found the spot to set up her campsite. But having been in this area earlier, some other time, she wanted to head back to the visitor center to say hello to the front office folks. At around noon, she drove out to the visitor center, which was about four or five miles down the road. Cynthia wasn't at the visitor center very long and she returned to her campsite. Cynthia had set up a fire pit and a few chairs. She had a folding table and she had hung some sheets. It's usually Cynthia's thing to walk around her campsite when she sets up shop to, you know, understand the lay of the land. And on this particular day, she was gathering firewood. As she was walking behind some bushes, she spotted something. It 
was a body. It was face down and Cynthia was about 10 feet away from the body. And the body was really only laying about 20 feet from Cynthia's campsite, but it was hidden behind some bushes. Cynthia was rightfully freaked out, but she was hoping the person was only sleeping. So she called out to the person. But upon hearing no response or seeing any movement, Cynthia Quick jumped into her car and returned to the visitor center to report what she had found. Police immediately arrive in the area and when they get to the campsite, they confirm this is a deceased female. She appears to be fully clothed. Her hands were bound in front of her with duct tape. It's unclear what the woman's cause of death is. And on top of this, she doesn't have any identification on her person. However, the deceased woman was wearing a long conservative looking gray dress, a white fleece looking jacket and boots. Her hair was up in bobby pins and covered with a hairnet. While the police are at the scene of the body, they're trying to communicate with others down at the station, but their location within the park is so remote and dense that they don't have any cell phone reception. And one detective ends up driving three or four miles down the road from the scene just to get reception. And this fact will become important later. The on-call Coconino detective on this day happens to be Detective Lauren Nagel, and she decides to go down to where the body was discovered. When she sees the body for the first time, she remembers seeing a missing persons poster for a Mennonite woman who went missing a month prior in the adjacent state of New Mexico. Nagel wonders if this could be that missing person. So they process the scene for hours and the following day, Coconino Police Department is on the phone with the San Juan County Police Department, which is where Farmington is located in New Mexico. They tell them that they found a woman they think might be Sasha Kraus. And the New Mexico Police Department, they waste no time. They beeline to Arizona and they bring all of their investigative files. Remember, at this point, they had followed up with every lead. They had interviewed various people, but the trail went cold. But we all know that once a body is found, the trail starts to heat up again. Lauren Nagel is assigned as the lead agent on this case. And since the body was found in her wheelhouse, they are taking over the entire case. Nagel relooks at everything that New Mexico had investigated in the case, and she takes a fresh new look at the case. Now that they have a body, they can pay a little more attention to people and places. And the first person of interest is clearly Samuel Kuhn. Heck, he was there at the time that Sasha disappeared, and now she's dead in Arizona. Detective Nagel writes out warrants for Samuel Kuhn and his wife's bank account records and their phone records. And that leads the detectives nowhere. But speaking of phone records, Detective Nagel realizes that now that they have a third location where Sasha was on the day she was murdered, they might be able to use cell phone records to, I don't know, generate a lead. Remember, the first two locations they had before they found a body were Farmington, New Mexico and Four Corners. But now they have Sasha's final resting spot in Flagstaff, Arizona. Detective Nagel contacts Sev Dishman, who assists with investigations. And she walks through the case with him. And as they're thinking through the case together, Sev says, what about a phone dump to see what cell phone, if any, shows up in those three locations on January 18th, the day that Sasha went missing? Detective Nagel thinks that's an excellent idea, and she gets to work obtaining search warrants from every cell phone provider in that area. When you think about what they do, it's a literal information dump of hundreds of thousands of phone records from a few set phone towers. 
Well, when they sift through all the information that they end up getting, you are not going to believe what they find. How many phone numbers do you think were in the area of Farmington, New Mexico, Four Corners and Flagstaff, Arizona with Sasha Krause on the day she went missing? Ten? Six? Maybe three phone numbers? Well, that's what I would think. But the answer is nope. The answer is exactly one phone number. One phone number hit towers in all three of those areas on the day that Sasha Kraus went missing. That is shocking, right? I mean, I was shocked when I heard that information. So now Nagel has a phone number, but she needs to get the contact information for this mysterious phone number person. That takes time, but eventually they get the information and the phone number belongs to an airman stationed at Luke Air Force Base. (laughs) When I heard this, I was like, tell me more. Yes, ma'am. The person who was in Farmington, New Mexico at the very time that Sasha went missing. Well, his phone also pinged in the area of Sutset Crater and at Four Corners at the same exact time that Sasha's phone gave off a signal for the very last time. That phone number belonged to Airman Mark Gooch. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Now, detectives had to figure out more information about this Mark Gooch character, and they issued more search warrants. They requested his entire phone record from AT&T. They requested his Google data information, and they requested his banking records because they wanted to see the story those records would tell. They wanted to see if anything else tied Mark to Sasha. Let's start with the bank records, American Express. Mark's bank records revealed that on the day that Sasha went missing, he stopped at a McDonald's in Cayenta, Arizona, which is about four and a half miles from Luke Air Force Base, and it's really close to the New Mexico border. There, he spent $8.09, and he continued on the road. Then, after arriving in Farmington, New Mexico, Mark stopped for gas. He fueled up to the tune of $31 and then continued. His bank records also revealed that on the day after Sasha's body was discovered, 
Mark spent a whopping $220 to get his car detailed near Luke Air Force Base. The Google data phone records, well, it's unclear if those revealed anything, but what it did reveal was that at a few crucial moments in the hunt for Sasha's killer, Mark went into his Google data location and boom, he deleted his location history, including deleting information for the day that Sasha was abducted. You see, he wouldn't just go into his Google data location and delete everything. He would specify a time frame and delete only that information, specifically focusing on the day that Sasha went missing. He also deleted his history location for two other periods of time. A few were after Sasha's abduction and more on why he deleted that later. But Mark also deleted his location history after he visited that car wash, which, come on, that's like super suspicious. A search of Mark's cell phone records revealed the most shocking information of all. The trial in this case spent a lot of time talking about cell phone data and how your phone is constantly emanating these signals that are picked up by different cell phone towers around you. The more populated area you're in, the more likely it is that your cell phone will ping off multiple towers within seconds or minutes. But when you're in a rural area, there aren't that many cell towers to confuse the issue. In this case, Mark used his Google Maps on his cell phone to travel from Luke Air Force Base to Farmington, New Mexico, and that information was readily available for the detectives. It actually shows that Mark left Luke Air Force Base on January 18th at about 9.04 in the morning. He then traveled north on I-17. While driving along this interstate, Mark took a picture of a burning truck stopped on the side of the road. Mark stopped for McDonald's before exiting Arizona, and he stopped for gas later on in the trip. And then when Mark arrived in the vicinity of the Lamp and Light Mennonite Church where Sasha went missing, boom, for three hours, Mark's phone stopped moving. It just went stagnant. And I use the word stagnant, and that's a term used by the specialist who testified in this case. The last time Mark's phone pinged in Farmington, New Mexico, was at 7.45 p.m. In comparison to Sasha's phone, her phone last pinged in the town of Farmington at 7.52 p.m. As Mark approached the Arizona border, Mark's phone pinged at 8.52 p.m. I know you're probably wondering about Sasha's phone and her phone pinged in the exact location where Mark's phone pinged before leaving New Mexico. And her phone ping occurred only a minute after his at 8.53 p.m. The crazier part is that I believe their phones pinged just over the border in Colorado because remember, they were nearing the four corners. Sadly, this was the last time that Sasha's phone was on. After this moment, her phone goes silent and there is never any communication with the phone. But because it's never been said, we really don't know what happened to her phone. Mark's phone, after Sasha's phone went off the network, it continued pinging along the road towards Luke Air Force Base. But at around midnight, he veered off into the Sunset Crater National Park. Now the road exiting the main highway to this park, it makes a giant backwards C into the park and back out onto the highway. 
It would normally take about an hour or so to make the sea loop through the park without any stops. But while driving through the sunset crater, Mark's phone makes a U-turn a little into the park. Then his cell phone data goes idle for almost two hours. Then it makes its way back onto the highway. In this particular circumstance, when I say that his phone goes idle, it doesn't mean that Mark isn't moving necessarily. It simply means that Mark's phone has lost connection to the network. And remember, the area where Sasha was found, there was zero reception. So this is kind of understandable if Mark's cell phone isn't giving off any signal. So we fast forward a few hours and Mark's cell phone is eventually in the vicinity of Luke Air Force Base at about 6.45 in the morning. While they're reviewing Mark's cell phone data, now mind you, they have never set eyes on this guy. They're strictly looking at his cell phone data, Google data, etc. Well, they noticed that two days after Sasha's disappearance, now it's January 21st, Mark left Luke Air Force Base at about 7.03 p.m. He then traveled to Sunset Crater National Park, arriving at around 9.40 p.m. His phone is stagnant for roughly 25 minutes in the same exact area as before, which is kind of close to where Sasha's body was found. And then he leaves the park at around 10.05 p.m., returning to Luke Air Force Base at 12.39 in the morning. Now, this all cannot be a coincidence. So the civilian authorities contact Luke Air Force Base OSI. They have a sit-down briefing where the civilians tell OSI everything they have. And I can only imagine the shock and awe at the Luke OSI office and the JAG office because they're usually looped into everything. The civilians, though, at this point, they need help executing their warrants. They need copies of the DBIDS log and they need any surveillance video of Mark's dorm. The DBIDS log, by the way, so DBIDS is a system used to identify who enters the military installation at any given time. In order to get onto a military installation, you have to show a military ID card or a visitor pass. And sometimes not always the ID card is scanned. Well, when the ID card is scanned, the information is maintained in a system, the DBIDS system, which now I always think about it, especially because I cover only military cases. I feel like it should kind of be a requirement to always scan your card to come in. But I don't know. I guess who am I? Detective Nagel reviews the additional information that she obtained from OSI to see if it all matched up to the information she already had. And after looking at it, bingo. It does actually correspond with everything she has. And when she reviews it, it sends chills down her spine. Because the man behind the horrendous murder of Sasha Kraus just seemed like a normal airman. He didn't look like a monster who stalks his victims seven hours from his military installation. The evidence shows Mark Gooch left his dorm room, which was located in building 634, room 206. So he left his room on January 18th at approximately 8.30 in the morning. He returned the following morning on January 19th at 6.56 a.m. Armed with this information, Coconino feels confident they have the right guy. On April 15, 2020, after OSI has already been keeping their eye on Mark Gooch to make sure he doesn't leave or escape anywhere, the Coconino detectives and OSI, they bring Mark Gooch in for questioning. 
and they do this under the ruse of a drug test. But when Mark shows up, they bring him into OSI and he's met by Detective Nagel. Meanwhile, upon entry, OSI has taken Mark's cell phone and they did what is called a Cellbrite poll, where they make a mirror image of your phone as it is that day. And Mark Gooch's cell phone just confirms everything they already know. And it's a landmine of information. Next time on Military Murder. Wolf. I hate two-parters too, but listen, I watched so much video footage about this episode, I just could not get it all done in one sitting. But don't worry, you won't have to wait two weeks for part two. I will definitely make it available in a week. If you want to tell me how much you hate me for making this a two-parter, or if you want to tell me how much you love me, join me live tonight on TikTok. My handle is Military Margot with a T at the end. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with all of my bootcamp and higher fan club members. If you're interested in joining the fan club, make sure to check it out at patreon.com slash military murder. Shout out to my newest executive producer, Bob. Bob, you're a freaking rock star. Thank you so much for your continued support in this journey. Shout out to my other executive producers, Falcon 13, Nicole, Alicia, Tina, Ryan, and Jen. Shout out to our newest associate producers, Allison, Eric, Catherine, and Christina. And finally, shout out to our newest assistant producers, Amanda, Amy, and Andrea. And also so many thanks to some of our other new supporters, including Serge, Amber, and Byron. I appreciate each and every one of you. The music in this show was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of this military murder story next week. working on our podcast. I don't want to.